Okay, so that was kind of a tour of um, touching into impermanence in different ways, right? So I want now to talk a little bit about our responses to impermanence. There's no way that people in the world have not noticed impermanence. You know, I, we talked about it at the beginning. Everybody says, yeah, that's right, things change. But they may not have encountered it. We don't know what level people have encountered it at, in a sense. So I want to offer a teaching that I first heard from Guy Armstrong, which I thought was quite um, brilliant. I heard it on a, on a long retreat, actually. But... Um, he brought in the concept of the personality type. There's, believe it or not, there is a Buddhist teaching on personality type. It's in a later uh, teaching called the Visuddhimagga um, that's kind of a psychological, well, no, not quite, but it's, it's a later commentary on the teachings. And it also includes some new teachings, one of which is this one. And it uh, kind of classifies people. I don't know if personality type is the right word to use because that has a lot of meaning in Western culture that was not, not the same meaning in ancient Indian culture. But essentially it means there are types of mind. <laughs> and the way that um, Guy framed this teaching, uh, which is similar to how it's framed in the Visuddhimagga, is that um, our personality type is our way of dealing with a situation that's difficult. <laughs> And so the, the difficult situation, uh, I'll describe it in terms that will make sense for a Westerner, is that we're born into a, a world that we can't deal with as a newborn, basically. I mean, think about your experience. If you just experience while you just experienced this while you were sitting, is that you have a continual flow. I highlighted feeling tone because you have a continual flow of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither that comes pretty much without your ability to control it. We do a little better as adults. But imagine a baby. I mean, it's just like it's bright light, it's cold, you can't feed yourself, you can't clean yourself. It's pretty much um, suffering, (laughs) you know. Not completely. There's the warmth of the mother's love, if you had that, and so forth. And the breast, boy, we all like that one. Um, And so forth. But pretty much while you're still trying to form like your perceptions and figure out what the world is, um, you need a, you don't have clear defense mechanisms coming from cognitive or emotional stability or understanding. And so what you do is um, you have to deal somehow with a world that is a random stream of pleasant and unpleasant. And what do we do with that? So we develop patterns for survival. And there's they're called, uh, the, at the top level, there's the greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. You know, the, the three poisons in Buddhist practice that, you know, constrain the mind. Uh, the theory here is that they were originally um, ways that we dealt with a world that we couldn't deal with. And so the greed type, for example, looks at a stream of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and says, I'm going to get the pleasant. <laughs> you know, let's just favor that one. <laughs> Um, And so we try to get everything that is pleasant and and hold that to us. That's our safety, is to bring in the pleasant and focus on that. The aversive type says, I'm going to get rid of what is unpleasant. 
Uh, the stuff I can't deal with, I'm going to get rid of it somehow. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to end it. I'm going to block it out. Um, and so that becomes the aim. That's what's going to be safe, is if I can get rid of those parts. And the diluted type just says, I can't deal with it at all. Zone out, fuzz out, you know, um, block. Don't take it in. Don't um, allow it to land. And so we see this. Um, the the Vasudhimaga describes um, kind of how each person will do a task. Like it says how each one would sweep a path and how each one would clean a table and things like that, which is pretty interesting. But um, the way we often describe it here is how each type would uh, walk into a room that they hadn't been in before. Like let's say you've never been to this center and you walk in the door. What do you do? So the greed type says... Wow, nice yellow walls. Those are really bright and inviting. And the floor, the bamboo, that is really nice. I've always liked hardwood floor. And it's just so spacious, like they don't have a lot of stuff on the walls. It just feels so calm in here. So just take what it's take what's pleasant. <laughs> and you know, and then maybe later you might notice some other things or whatever. But that's kind of like the initial impression. And then the aversive type, however, walks in, and it's all about, you know, oh my God, the ceiling is kind of low. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it feels a little bit closed in, and there's a pole in the middle of the room. That was kind of a stupid design. Um, couldn't they have done something besides that? And, you know, those fans are awfully low because of the low ceiling. I bet if somebody were to stretch with their hands up, they could, like, get them caught in that fan. That's really dangerous. So, you know. But once that's squared away and they know where all the dangers are, then they can see other things. Um, And then the diluted type, you know, they could go into this hall for months and somebody will say, what color are their walls? And they have no clue. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I never really noticed that part. So, I don't know. Um, is there a rug? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe there's one in the back. Where are the light switches? <laughs> Where are the light switches? Yeah, so you... Exactly. Somebody might not know that. I mean, you can think about it now. What color is your kitchen? Do you know exactly? Most people do, but you never know. Um, so... I mean, could you pick that paint color out if you went to a store? If you painted the kitchen yourself, you could. But if you're just renting an apartment, is it white? Is it off-white? Hmm. Glossy? Not? So, there you go. Um, don't judge yourself too quickly, by the way. We don't, um, we don't want to limit ourselves. We also don't want to limit ourselves to just one type or one thing. We all have greed, hatred, and delusion. We all have all of them, just so you know. (laughs) But these as responses, it's interesting to know what your primary pattern is. They also depend a little bit on energy level, the type of circumstance that we're encountering. Like there may be some things where our response is to get angry, which is an aversive response, and other things where our response is to um, tune it out, which is more of a diluted response. Um, But you, you may nonetheless... It can be helpful to have a sense of our pattern, of how we approach the world. Um, so, and we don't, we also, I just want to say, we want to be careful about typing other people, like, you know, saying, oh, my brother, boy, he's a deluded type. You know, it's like, that's maybe and maybe not. Uh, 
I'll, as a counteraction to that, I'll mention that Mary Grace Orr, who was the founder of this group, um, for years thought she was a greed type. You know, she liked nice stuff, and she went for, you know, she tried to surround herself with pleasant things. So she assumed she was a greed type. And she even went through the, she was going through the Spirit Rock teacher training with Jack Cornfield, and she would say to her fellow classmates and to him, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a greed type. And he would always look at her kind of out of the side of his eyes when she said that. And she, she didn't notice, and, you know, she breezed over that. But she said later she thought, maybe it's because he knew because she later realized that she's actually an aversive type. And um, other people, of course, were clearer on this. <laughs> Sometimes it does work that way. But so we, we can, it's particularly greed and aversion, um, you know, like if you, if you prefer to drive on 280 rather than 101, is it because you're greedy for the relative nicer view on 280, or is it because you're avoiding the relative lesser view on 101? Something like that. So, you know, they can get entangled. Are you going toward or away from? Um, also, we tend to have a subtype that can be somewhat strong sometimes. So, like, Mary Grace is actually, she now identifies, may change, <laughs> she now identifies as aversive with a pretty strong streak of greed. And so she sees both of those in herself. And maybe she was favoring the greed because she kind of thought that was better or something. I don't know. Um, so... You know, just just notice these patterns. I think that's the interesting part, is to notice how we meet things that are fresh or new, and also how we meet change. So, um, for example, for the greed type, change is often seen as an opportunity. You know, it's like, oh, this is going to be a way that something cool can come about. Why don't we, you know, this is really neat. Why don't we create a bunch of new stuff and build new things, and we've got a whole new space here. Let's have a bunch of new programs. And probably that'll all happen, but, you know, it's kind of how you meet it. Is that, like, the first thing that you see? And then it's challenging if you're meeting, say, a terminal illness. Greed types have trouble with that, actually, because they don't have the preparation for, um, well, there are creative responses. And then the, the aversive type responds to change, often with um, trying to control it. You know, it's like, this is scary, this is not what I wanted, I don't want to change at all. It's it's like a tightening up, and then it's like, how can I get control of this? Um, so also difficulty with things that are not easy to control. Delusion type, did something change? <laughs> um, I don't want to diss the delusion type, by the way. They often get a um, kind of put down. We all have delusion, by the way. And del- there's always delusion present with greed and aversion. Just so you know, those cannot exist by themselves. Because there's the delusion that there's a person to which they're happening, or, to, or who is responding, or who is receiving change. So there's always, um, there's always delusion along with greed and aversion. But there are some people that are pure delusion types. And interestingly, um, a lot of scientists are delusion types. So it doesn't have to do with intelligence. The word delusion, we could say confusion, something like that. So don't insult the, uh, the delusion type. They also have a hard time because the other types um, dismiss them easily because they're a little slower at catching on to what's going on. So they've been told their whole life that they're incompetent in various ways or they're not getting it. Um, and that, that's hard for them. So... What underlies all three of these types 
There are actually six types in the Vasudhi Magha because they take positive and negative aspects of each one, but I don't want to get too complicated. What underlies all three of them is fear. Right? It's the fear of this is a world where I don't have total control and things are changing and I don't get a total choice about that and I don't always understand it and they change in ways I don't want them to. My relationships end or uh, other things. And so there's a lot of fear. And you may, I mean, there's the gross fear that we experience about real, genuine threats or things that might happen. Um, And then there's that undercurrent of fear in our lives that has to do with, this is pretty uncertain. This is a little dicey. (laughs) We get that at some level. And um, I love that Buddhism wants to address this. The Buddha said, actually, this is... Dukkha. This is that that underlying feeling of unsettledness, of it's not quite right, of I can't get it together and keep it that way, and we know that. <laughs> um, that is actually a really good definition for dukkha. People often translate it as suffering, but unsatisfactoriness. We can't completely get this thing to work. And to acknowledge that is, very, is to acknowledge the first noble truth. And then it's quite a radical act to say, I'm going to find a way to be happy anyway. Happiness is not getting it all together and getting it to work and living forever. Happiness is learning to somehow know that all of that is uncertain and still have a deep peace, abiding contentment with that. So this is very radical. So we're going to have to look at fear. My, my teacher, Gil Fronstall, says, any spiritual practice worth its salt will eventually produce fear. I think that's true. You will eventually touch this in any spiritual practice worth its salt. Now, if you want one that's just about happiness and positive positivity and so forth, okay, but it's not going to address this underlying issue. So we can, especially, that's partly why pointed us toward that in meditation is that when we start to touch that in meditation we really we can really start to feel it people do experience um, sometimes quite a lot of fear in their practice their world starts to fall apart you know if people come in and they think okay I'm going to meditate and I'm going to get my life together but when you meditate and you discover all the ways in which your life isn't together and the ways in which it can't can't be put together in the way you thought it could and so then then we're really scared and we need the support of other people, and we need these teachings even more. So we're going to talk more about this in the afternoon also. Um, but I want to offer this from Pima Chodron. There are many stages in the practitioner's journey of working with fear, but it is very important to know where it begins so we can get off on the right foot. The starting point is called the narrow path, where you look straightforwardly at your own experience. You examine fear and dissect it into its components. Where does it arise? What is the sensation when you feel afraid? What kind of thoughts race through your mind when you are in a state of fear? What's your particular pattern? Do you panic? Do you freeze? Do you get really busy and try to fix everything? Do you get angry? So this is important to know. And, you know, I'm focusing on fear because... That's important. Um, but it could be, you could think of other 
kinds of change. You know, some of you mentioned specific changes, uh, changes in health or changes in relationship. When you talked at the beginning, what's your pattern? What thoughts go through your mind? We had one person say that they have the thought of, this is, un- this is not stable and therefore why bother? So that's a perfectly valid response that people have to encountering these issues in their lives. Why bother? Uh, and in the long run, that's usually not satisfying, so we, look, we have to look for meaning somehow. Um, but it is, a, it is a pattern in the mind, and understand that that pattern comes about because it's unpleasant, it's unsettled. We, we touch into, yeah, this is not under my control, and then there's, how can I make it work? Maybe if I just avoid the whole thing, it'll be okay. So this, is, this can touch into fairly deep psychology. But I'm doing this a little bit because, don't worry, there are tools. <laughs> and you already have the most important one, which is mindfulness and meditation. We've already practiced that. And there are others that we'll talk about. Um, so I'm, I'm deliberately opening and pushing a little bit so that you can touch into. You've got to feel it. And then, don't worry, there are ways of meeting this. There is also... And we heard about this from someone at the beginning also. There's also a positive response that when we start to touch into all of this, yes, there's fear, and yes, there's a sense of the ground is <laughs> slipping away, and there's an opportunity also for compassion, which is a positive result of starting to feel our own impermanence, our own challenge in life. So that we start. That was what I said at the very end. It's like this for everyone. There's no one who doesn't have change in their life. There's no one who doesn't wish that things could just be settled. I don't know if they necessarily want everything to be static, but they would like it to be so that it works in some way. There isn't anybody who doesn't want that, and yet everybody has to deal with it's hard. They've gotten themselves into difficult situations. Um, They may also have personality patterns that are really, really dysfunctional, and they're reacting with anger, with seeking power uh, with harming others as a way to control them just control the environment and make it safe for them which are completely we you know completely strategies that don't work there's a there's levels of strategies that don't work right there's the ones that totally don't work which we see sometimes out in the political scene bad idea war doesn't work uh, these sorts of things but then you know we can get down to the layers of things that sort of work slightly better but still don't work like trying to control our relationships or trying to avoid getting ill by doing lots of yoga and brushing our teeth nine times a day and eating really, really healthy and sleeping a lot. There are a lot of people who are very attached to creating the perfect, uh, perfectly nourishing, supportive lifestyle for their body somehow with a not-quite-recognized sense of this is my strategy for avoiding impermanence and sickness and death. It doesn't really work. Not that you shouldn't do yoga and brush your teeth, and please do. I do. I love Tai Chi. I'm taking a class right now. Um, But I don't think it's going to save me from dying, (laughs) Um, or even from pain or illness. I'm just happy. I'm actually quite grateful I can do it, (laughs) because I won't be able to someday. I eat healthy because it supports the fact that that helps me um, be able to teach the Dharma. If I didn't take care of myself in certain ways, 
I couldn't play this role of teacher, which I think is so nourishing and supportive, and I know it's a good thing to do, and I care about other people, and I care about sharing these teachings. So I do these things, but I don't think, I try to avoid having the illusion that um, somehow that pr- that's a protection against all these changes in life. It's not. Um, or that I'll be able to do it forever, or that I deserve things because I do it. Um, thank you for doing the lights, and I know you have to move your car. Yes. <laughs> the impermanence of the parking lot. That's right. <laughs> so there can be compassion then. We can suddenly realize, wow, how can I live so that, yes, I have to deal with this for myself and find supports and find the wisdom inside to work with it, and how can I meet the people who are also in that situation, not only other Sangha members who are working toward wisdom and compassion, but even the folks who are not fortunate enough to be interested in this, and they're living their lives more from a reactive surface place of having trouble dealing with all those changes. How can I support them, too? And the beauty of our practice is that it creates so much strength and so much care and love that we actually we do have enough to share with others. Thank goodness. I mean, these practices are not just for us. Um, and sometimes we only have the energy for them to be for us. If we get very ill, we're not going to be out there doing compassionate action, but then it's all for this heart, and there will be others to support us. This is how it works. So compassion is actually a good result of turning toward. If we're willing to look at the difficulties, the heart will break, the heart will open, and there's the possibility of connecting to other beings. We may not share the same political views with other people, the same lifestyle, the same favorite foods, but we all share aging, illness, and death, and suffering in our lives. That's a great connector, actually. And so this is not depressing. This is not a depressing topic has the potential to lead to great things. Okay, so um, I'm going to read a poem that is somewhat powerful and speaks to this truth. It's called, you may have heard it before, it's often often read at Buddhist centers. It's called The Dakini, the Dakini Speaks by Jennifer Wellwood. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or, if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. 
The true adult human gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So I, um, I don't remember when I first heard that one, but I, um, I heard it at least one time recently from a friend of mine who was dying. And he had a cancer diagnosis. He'd actually had cancer for a while. It was one of those ones that went on for a while, but not forever. And at some point, you know, he really had to, uh, he really had to, and he really had time to look at um, what was important to him. And at one point, he sent that poem to everybody who was on his support group email list as kind of a, I think, a wake-up call for the rest of us, because he was going... He was going. So I like that. Okay, so I would like for us to do um, a small group exercise. Um, and I'm, I, we're going to have to wait for Gory to get back because I want to do it in pairs. Um, so maybe I'll stop while we're waiting for her to get back. And I'll ask for any responses to, um, say, that meditation that we did of first reflecting on change and then encountering it directly, like feeling it in the body and the mind, and any, any, any of the reflections. Does anyone have any comments up to this point in the day? I have a comment that I, uh, appreciating sort of that uh, you talked about fear mm-hmm. and t- touching on that because I think in that quote, would every spiritual practice worth its salt, right? Like it, it addresses fear. Um, yeah, so I just really appreciating, uh, appreciated uh, hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. One thing I really like about Buddhist practice is its honesty. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't say, just smile and everything will be fine. Um, although just smiling is a great practice. Um, but that was one thing that I felt, because when I first arrived at a center, I'm now going beyond what you said, but um, when I first arrived at a Buddhist center, I was in a state of suffering, and I was needing something to deal with that. Uh, and... What I appreciated so much was hearing the noble truths. And it's like, oh, right, there is suffering. That's the first noble truth. And it said, oh, thank goodness somebody just said it out loud. <laughs> thank you. And then, you know, from there it goes on to, don't worry, there's a, a cure and a path to get there. But it acknowledges that right up front. And I, I like that. And people who uh, don't think there's any problem, you know, they don't see the issue with the first noble truth, they probably don't need this practice. <laughs> you know? But if you think there's any suffering, then you might want this practice. Yeah. Any other comments? Did you have one, Linda? Yeah. I just want to say I appreciated the guided meditation, mm. and it was nice to fall into it and um, go with it. And I found that that particular sit, I went a little deeper than where I have been going. Mm. Good. Yeah. I did have another comment in regards to um, 
the last line of the poem that you read there? Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Yeah, and um, I think of myself as, as a person of hope, and it's kind of been a uh, personality conflict with another in regards to um, that person having no hope. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, so I did find a, I can an imagine. aversion to that yeah. <laughs> when I heard that. I think the word hope can have a lot of different meanings, even though it's one word. I mean, there's there's a difference between wise hope of, you know, this practice is very hopeful, actually. It says that your body's going to die, but your mind can keep developing forever, and the heart can keep opening. And anyone who's been in a room with someone who's dying, like my friend who sent this around, um, his... I wasn't present. I managed to be flying on a plane the moment that he died, but I rushed there after the when I got landed in the airport. And he, um, there was so much peace and ease and beauty, and the people were there for his death, said it was like this huge opening. So I think we can always have hope in the sense that the mind is um, unlimited. It can always keep developing and opening and growing and becoming more wise. But there's also kind of blind hope of... Maybe it'll just get better. Um, um, maybe my, you know, my ship's going to come in someday, and once that happens, everything's going to be great. You know, if only such and such. As soon as that happens, then it's going to be great. Uh, that kind of hope it tends to disappoint in the long run. People eventually end up at a Buddhist center. <laughs> so I want to be careful with the word hope, and I don't, I don't feel like this poem was pointing toward the positive hope and saying there's no hope at all, everything's just depressing and terrible. But I don't know. I mean, I'll leave it open. I suppose it could be heard in many different ways. Yeah. I hope. Delusional hope. Yeah, maybe that's another way. There's wise hope and delusional hope. Yeah. Seeing how we're going to lose everything. Let's wake up to it. So. Yeah, I think it's meant to pop the bubble if we're living a life of just surface level pleasures basically yeah yeah I'm never gonna die exactly I used to volunteer for hospice um, hospice of the valley over the hill it's not a Buddhist organization obviously but um, they had something they they often used hope as um, a touchstone in um, in what they wanted to offer people is that even though you have a six-month diagnosis and you're on hospice care, there's still hope. And then people would have to explore what that meant. because, And they would deliberately use that word because people at that point are like, well, there's no hope. You know, I'm dying. That's it. And so then they would bring in this word of hope and you would have to ask, well, what does that mean? And he was like, well, you know, I can review my life. I can celebrate my happiness. I can be with my family. I can have as much pain reduction as possible, but still, you know, live in in the knowing of what's going on. Um, and so there were all different ways that people would meet that. And for those who were Christian, you know, there's the hope of, well, maybe I'm going to meet God or I'm going to make my peace. Um, it was nice. I liked that they used the word hope for a hospice organization. That was a contrast. So I think maybe here, no hope, like you said, is the contrast of living a deluded life of not recognizing these truths. I don't know, does that help unpack it a little bit for you? There's still, I think... Every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. And, you know, um, 
yeah, these are words that we can define for ourselves and it really matters how we're how we're living. If we're living with less suffering, great. <laughs> That's good. So good. Now we have an even number of people. <laughs> and um, yeah, if you guys could get into pairs, just choose somebody and then I'll um, let you know what we're doing. So move close to somebody. Okay, so what we're going to do is that um, you'll first describe a change that you encountered sometime in the last week. (coughs) So it could be, um, it could, and it should be something that was not of your choice. You know, like you got a parking ticket or your car broke down or you went to the store and they didn't have the kind of fruit you were intending to buy. I don't know, just something, some change or shift that you encountered. Um, It could be a welcome change or it could be an unwelcome change. I'm not declaring which one it was. But just pick something. And I'm choosing the last week so that you can't pick some exemplary time from your life when you can, you know, have it all shaped as to what your response was. So it's just something. And so the first question is, what was your initial mental response to encountering this change? You know, what came up for you to the degree that you can remember and can you remember anything about your physical response was there a closing and opening a feeling of energy what body sensations did you actually have regarding this change so I think we'll we'll start with that one and each person can speak um, why, why doesn't you decide decide who goes first and each person will speak uninterrupted for let's say two minutes about Don't make it a whole long story. Just describe the change and focus more on your mental and physical response to encountering some change in the last week. So the first person can go ahead. So hopefully that was intriguing. Mm -hmm. Um, So now the next question is, um, is this a typical pattern for you? what you just described. And in general, how do you frame change in your life? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it ugly? <laughs> you know, um, to, to have a chance to just, to just consider without locking yourself in, is this my usual thing? Do I get angry? Do I get scared? Do I feel confused and disrupted when there's change? Or do I feel like, cool, exciting, what, what can happen next? And it'll be it'll be different in different cases, of course. But basing on this, is this a typical pattern, and how do you frame change? So why don't you why don't you just have a conversation about this for a few minutes? And um, since I noticed some of you went into conversation anyway, but make sure each of you both gets to comment on that and give the person space to reflect. Okay, I'll ring the bell when it seems like the energy's coming down. Okay, so um, so comments to the larger group. Do you have, if anyone want to share what their personality type is or <laughs> pattern? I'm curious how that was for you to um, describe a fairly mundane change and just observe. What is it that, how did you respond? What was that like for you? 
Yeah. Well, I went from peaceful days to being a substitute teacher. So That's a big and, change. And it started at 6.30 in the morning because I didn't even know the evening before. So I went over to the school, and it was a field trip. And like, it wasn't organized at all. They had these parents volunteers, and they had all these little papers with their names on them, and I didn't know anybody's name. I'd never worked in that classroom before. So the, you know, where I went to is, oh boy, I get to go to the beach. So that was my first, you know, and that made me really happy, right? Right. And then the second reaction was, oh God, I've got these really difficult kids. I can see it already. I could have to deal with this all day. Then the third reaction was, well, how can I get out of dealing with the difficult kids? So that seemed to work out because I went in a car. I didn't have a group, and I went in a car with a nice grandma and one well-behaved child, and things were, it was really beautiful there. And then we got home, and then all the kids left, and then I had to think about the next day because I was going to be in the class, and sure enough, the same kids I could see were going to be difficult on the first day were even more difficult on the second day. <laughs> so my response to the difficultness seemed to be, I went and found a chocolate chip cookie at an art show that was right near where we were. Uh huh. We so, so talk about a change from like peaceful gardening, taking care of the house days to, oh yeah, yeah. Right, but look, you went toward the pleasant, basically. Oh, I went right there. Yeah, yeah. and stayed there. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Andreas. Yeah, I, I had an experience where I shared uh, some personal stressful situation that I have with an illness in the family um, at work. And I shared it with somebody that I work for who is, um, um, she's waiting for me to make progress on a project, but the personal situation has somehow, I mean, my mind has been kind of split. So I felt like, I felt bad that I hadn't made as much progress, and I was totally, so I was scared of sharing it, and I was totally surprised at the response I got, the understanding and the huh. empathy, actually, and, um, uh-huh. and I hadn't expected that specifically from the person, and I just could feel how, I mean, um, what a relief it was, like I could feel it in my body, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, my mind it was kind of a, and, um, yeah, I was saying that that is actually not my typical, I, to, to, to reach out or to open up like that is not my typical mm-hmm. way of um, um, dealing with situations like that, but it was very positive. So you had some aversion ahead of time out of the idea of what might happen if this, yeah, and then it was different than you thought. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Changes go in all different directions, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other comments or questions? I would have to say, in terms of uh, how I've noticed how change works in my life, is uh, as I expressed. Uh, as far as it being a process, you know, I'll have the initial blow if it's something to do with sadness or fear, or even if it's joy, if it's, uh, I can understand the process of it. And so to go through the feelings and 
to be with them for as long as they want to exist, <laughs> or however long I want to stay in the suffering, and um, and then the process of um, using the tools that I've gained and reaching out to people who know me and writing and um, knowing. It's, it's, it's really powerful to know that there's freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so with that, I'm going to throw that word hope out there. It, it does give me hope to know, yeah. you know that uh, I will be moving on from this. It's just a matter of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's wise hope, right? It's knowing that um, things that are unpleasant will end in some way. They they can't persist forever, right? Because that's kind of the no hope is when it's like, well, this is going to be like this forever. <laughs> and, yeah, and having some process, some practices, some sense. I think... Um, I think it's very important at some point in practice for people to hear the Four Noble Truths. You know, that's the, the sort of unique, said to be, the unique teaching of the Buddha. And we hear them at a top level and we say, oh yeah, whatever. And then it takes, you know, to really understand the Four Noble Truths completely, you have to be completely free. But we can learn them at varying levels. And I always, I have had the sense that um, if people don't hear them, they don't understand what the promise of practice could be. Like, why would you sit on a cushion and not move for half an hour? Um, unless you had somehow heard that there is, really is the possibility that this, um, the difficulties could be overcome, not through our usual sense of, I'm going to overcome them all by defeating them and then, then it will be perfect. But they can, um, yeah, the mind can transform such that it doesn't, respond with any suffering to how life actually is, which is changing. <laughs> it's quite radical. I mean, it's really quite radical. And I sometimes, you know, continue to remind myself, no, this is really, um, this is really quite a, uh, I don't know, can I say, uh, arrogant isn't the right word, but uh, you know, how could you look at this life and say, well, I'm going to meet it with no suffering. <laughs> There's going to be no suffering at all, despite aging, illness, and death, and separation, and difficulty, and you know, etc. And to to think that somebody could have that idea in a world where nobody would believe that that wasn't believed at the time, and then to go and find that solution, and stick with all the, all that you have to go through to make that happen in the mind, and then offer it to people. Wow. <laughs> and it's reverberated for 2,600 years since that happened. Whatever happened under the Bodhi tree at that time had a pretty big effect. So I find that very inspiring. Yeah. Such a simple topic, change, and so amazing. Yeah. Okay, well... Um, what I wanted to do, actually, is, is then um, have a sit again and just um, have some quiet time until uh, lunch is going to be at 12.15. And then, um, just as a preview, we'll have an hour for lunch and come back at 1.15. And I want to talk then about um, 
why is it hard to open to impermanence? You know, we all meet it at this surface level where we have the suffering when we're reacting to it. And then there's this need to, to practice and go deeper, but it's, it's hard to do that, actually. And there are a number of um, reasons why it's difficult, and I want to actually name those and talk about that a little bit. And then um, we'll also do some more meditation, so you'll have a chance to, um, to practice with, similar to what we did this morning, practicing with the changing sensations. And then we'll talk more about um, fear, we'll, fear and fearlessness and inner refuge. Remember I said that don't worry that we're opening up to it, there's going to be solutions. I want to talk about the ways that um, we respond not to this existential fear that we have and to the change with, um, what, with fearlessness. And there are many responses. You may think fearlessness looks like a certain thing, but um, you know, compassion is a form of fearlessness, for example but a way that this fear doesn't get under our skin and, and cause the suffering. So that, and then the, the idea of inner refuge. Uh, how can we find something inside that's really supportive for us? Um, leading eventually to the ultimate support of Nibbana. But we'll also do a, um, an experiential exercise of literally turning toward some of the issues that we have. And that should... Uh, round us out. So, um, if you need to use the bathroom or get water or anything, that's fine for a few minutes, and then we'll sit for about 20-25 uh, minutes. So, feel free.